Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a dink. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we prepared especially for them. I'm Duji Taha. I'm Luther Chocolate and Nuts Hughes. And I'm Gabrielle in Strucks and Delights Bates. Mm. Oh, are you? This week, we're talking with Bettina Judd about history, art, and joy. Our signature drink for this episode is a joy spritzes. <laughs> An Aperol spritz you have to toast with, with the way Lucille Clifton signed all of her books. The word joy with an exclamation point. <laughs> this is the corniest thing we've ever done. Bettina Judd is a writer, artist, and performer whose research focus is on black women's creative production and our use of visual art, literature, and music to develop feminist thought. Currently an assistant professor of gender, women, and sexuality studies at the University of Washington, she has received fellowships from the five colleges, the Vermont Studio Center, and the University of Maryland. Her poems and essays have appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, and her collection of poems is Patient. Winner of the Black Lawrence Press Hudson Book Prize. As a performer, she has been invited to perform for audiences within the United States and internationally. But before we get into that wonderful convo with Bettina, we have one question from our audience. Problematic Patty asks, what the fuck is prosody and why should I care? Thank you, Patty. Thanks, Problematic Patty. Okay, what's problematic about this question? Patty. (laughs) (laughs) all right i yeah i gotta come clean i don't understand what prosody is i don't get it it's a word it's a word that poets throw out that like smart academic poets throw out to make poets like me feel insecure is my take what did google say it was was, uh... google says it's prosody is the patterns of rhythm and sound used in poetry, which I feel like just talk about rhythm and talk about sound, talk about rhyme, you know, like all these other things have words already. I don't understand why prosody is a thing. I think of prosody as for sure those things, but also more so talking about the technicalities of using rhythm and sound um, and how the line does that and how meter does that. Also, yeah, um, so how is prosody syllables. different than meter? I think prosody is the overarching like theory of using all those things. Square rectangle? Yeah, so it's like all those things. Where prosody is. Are we doing math now? Are we doing all my least favorite <laughs> things at the same time? <laughs> is that prosody what's happening? Prosody is the rectangle. And meter is a square. I hate you. Okay. <laughs> this is a subset. This is a subset, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I think prosody does more than... Uh, Again, it's, it's all those things and also includes like meter and rhythm and sound and also like syllable count and also like the actual line itself. So it does a, it does a, hmm. a corruption of a lot of things. But I do hear you people say like, oh, this is like, it's about like, let's talk about prosody in this poem. And it's like, just say what you want to say. Like, yeah. you don't want to talk about prosody. We we'll talk about probably meter most likely. Yeah. And I do think, Gabby, you are asking like a question underneath that question, which is like, maybe what's the difference between like music and prosody? Yeah. Um, or just, yeah, talking about patterns of sound can go in a lot of different ways. But I guess, is that just another way of saying talking about prosody? Talking about patterns of sound? I, I think, think so. so. Yeah. And just I talking think about like sonic pleasures or yeah. something. And I think there's an element of prosody that you can pick up in just like encountering the page, right? Without necessarily reading something out loud. Like mm-hmm. prosody can still control like your reading experience. Um without and musicality obviously like necessitates a sound like out loud right Mm. um whereas there are sort of sounds happening in your brain when you read something um that are like not necessarily the same thing i think also it's really important like and you know i'm thinking of the robert pinsky book like the sound of poetry and i took a a stallings course in meter thinking like she was gonna like unlock something for me <laughs> she is she's so smart brilliant but also they're like in both cases they're like look just like don't take it as seriously as everyone 
take like it's it. a serious <laughs> like sounding word but you don't exactly. have to be made to feel inferior when yeah, you read it yeah it should like <laughs> inform it should be like another thing that helps you think about the thing but if like that is like it should never be like it's not it shouldn't be the dog that wags the tail or the tail that wags the dog okay you're throwing out all these <laughs> quote unquote yeah. helpful <laughs> metaphors that are just really confusing me well, but I like this one because it has a dog in it yeah <laughs> <laughs> well it's just like function and form right like you shouldn't be writing I think like with prosody first foregrounded right I think mm. prosody should be something that comes in as you're revising hmm that's interesting that's a turn I know that Carl Phillips teaches a course on prosody that I feel like I missed it I wish I could take <laughs> I missed it because he might <laughs> He stopped teaching it for like two years and taught it again. That's amazing. That was like personally victimizing you. I felt personally victimized. That's how I felt. Yeah. Yeah. That was personal. And he was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to teach it again. If I leave and then prosody, I'm like, oh. And then you could be answering this question for us right now. Hmm. Hmm. Thanks, Patty. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, and now. Bettina. I had an ordeal with medicine. Everybody talking at once. I must have been found guilty of something. I don't feel innocent here, lurking with ghosts. See, it happens like that. I start at a thought that is quite benign and end up peckant, debased. I had an ordeal with medicine and was found innocent or guilty. It feels the same because I live in a haunted house. A house can be a dynasty, a bloodline, a body. There was punishment. Like the way the body is murdered by its own weight when lynched. Not that I was wrong, but that verdicts come in a bloodline. In 2006, I had an ordeal with medicine. To recover, I learn why ghosts come to me. The research question is, why am I patient? Thank you. Yeah. That was was great. It's meta. Yeah. We are all talking at once. Yeah. Yeah, we've never had... Never had to before. do that. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Participatory. Yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you for bringing us into the poem that way. Um, yeah. So to dive right in. Okay. Um, your book, Patience. Uh, you know, as patient. I was patient. patient. Your book, Patient. Drag him. <laughs> <Yeah>. Patience. <laughs> I deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> um, your book, Patient. Yes. Seems steeped uh, to me in the poetics of explication, um, which mm-hmm. I guess I would define as like a deep detailed analysis and search of some sort of revelation um later in the book (laughs) (laughs) but you write though that you don't want to be responsible for the retelling Mm -hmm. um so i'm curious how you engage with history as fraught as like the racist history of gynecology and not falling into the trap of retelling and sort of what checks you had for yourself in the crafting or the revising of the work to Mm -hmm. ensure that um yeah that is a thing that kept coming up and I think still even now still comes up. Um, One thing was uh, I wanted to be transparent in my own stakes in the project by, you know, you know, writing poems about like what Mm -hmm. it means to be a researcher and still like in a different way, but trying to inhabit the voices of the dead. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and so, you know, that's why the, those poems that come in the like last quarter or so of the book are, are what they are. It's like I'm thinking about what it means to be um, interrogating something, the archive of which is only left behind by those who have committed violence against these people. Like I, we only know what we know about Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy because of what J. Marion Sims wrote down. Mm-hmm. Um, um, <clears throat> or, or that's like the primary. We only know about um, Joyce Heth's life because of the way, if we know anything about her life, but because of the way that P.T. Barnum put her in a spotlight 
you know, through a particular another kind of violence. Like, it's, you know, she was enslaved as if that wasn't enough. And then there's this other component to her experience as um, an enslaved person. So, um, so I wanted to be clear about that. I think also, um, you know, I had moments where, you know, I was thinking about, well, maybe I should really get into like an authentic enslaved voice. If that mm. means, you know, like it, and when I would workshop the poems, you know, people would ask, well, would Anarka or Betsy or Lucy say these particular words? And I was like, no, they probably wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And I think what I decided was like, maybe it was more ethical that they did kind of sound like me as mm-hmm. I'm like a puppet mm-hmm. to what they're, what I hope they would say. Right. So they are being filtered through me. There is no, um, like, imagining that like they are actually sitting down here and writing these poems in their own voices it's that like I'm a researcher and I'm doing this kind of translative work um and so what was your question again well I I just during the course of either writing or editing just like how you sort of ensured that you weren't doing slipping into the kind of retelling that you didn't want yeah I don't think um, I think I slipped, mm. Mm. you know, like, and that's a part of it, right? Like, I think, like, I, I acquiesce to the fact that, the, like, the slippage is going to happen, um, and to reflect in what those moments tell me about myself, about the conditions we live in, about what it means to do work as a researcher, um, what it means to, you know go through the archive of slavery as a as a source for any kind of thing is there are there any moments of slippage that sort of like jump out to you as like a really good learning moment of slippage so that question is super broad which i like (laughs) (laughs) because like slippage could mean all kinds of things but i think one of my favorite poems, if there wasn't a favorite poem to have, they're all my babies, <laughs> um, is the one, um, look at me not remembering my baby's name. <laughs> but okay. the, you published this book a while ago. Right, it's the fifth anniversary. Oh, you know? happy this, fifth anniversary. I know, it's five years old, going to kindergarten. kindergarten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably um, had a really cute Halloween costume. It really did. Um, da, 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 da. The one poem where I actually talk about that slippage kind of explicitly is um, the researcher contemplates Venus and the the line, you know, questions that lead toward the body trip over the dead. Um, um, and so I am thinking, I was thinking about it there I mean, particularly in this section, one, because um, in that latter section of the book, I'm writing about Esmeen Green, Henrietta Lacks, and I was, you know, I was, you know, in the first iterations of these poems, I was reading them at little poetry readings all over D.C., and um, people would ask me, well, do you know about Sarah Bartman? You know, do you know about Sarky Bartman? Will you write about Sarky Bartman? And I was like what black woman my age hasn't had a Sarky Bartman poem? Mm. And like, what does it mean that this, that she's the beginning of the story? Mm. Like how many times is she trampled over in the retelling of her story? Mm. And as far as I was concerned, you know, the ultimate poem for her had already been written mm. by Diana Ferris. Mm. We have come to take you home because that poem actually got her bones repatriated to South Africa. Like it's a poem that actually did mm. some stuff. So mm. what the hell would I have to say? Right. Uh, you know, what yeah. else would I have to say at this point? <laughs> to, right. to, to, you know, like in a, in a real like concrete, like it would be ego at that point. And so the one poem where I mentioned Sarki Bartman is Sarki being like annoyed with her name being called again, you know? Like, really, can I rest? I mean, and, and it's a real question, right? Because even her her burial site is constantly being kind of decimated and, you know, 
um, graffitied over and all kinds of stuff. So like, it's, she's still a contentious body, even though she's in the grave. Like she was in a museum for a century, over a century, and now she's finally buried, or what was left of her body is finally buried um, as of 2002, and she's still contentious, right? And so I was like, why do you, why do you, why do you want me to write a poem about Sarky Bartman? And, you know, um, and so that was the poem to kind of address that. And, and in this section, it's meaningful to me because um, I'm writing about Esmeen Green and Henrietta Lacks, who have people around who are still living and who know these people, these women, right? And so what does it mean to like have, you know, it's really cute and easy to, to do research and no one living is able to like check you, mm. you know, or yeah. like mm -hmm. feel harm, you know, like, mm. you know, there's, as far as I know, I don't I don't know anyone who knows themselves to be a descendant of Anarcha Betsy or Lucy or any of the other enslaved people that J. Marion Sims experimented on, right? That like somebody might pop up and be like, actually, <laughs> hold on, bitch. But you know, like it's we'll not let you know if anyone contacts the podcast. <laughs> but we but we know Henrietta Lacks's daughter right. and the rest of her family. Like we we like Esmeen Green's family. You know, was a part of. Um, you know, the aftermath of her dying on that um, emergency room floor. So, like, these are people who are still living and still are suffering, like, the real live consequences in a different way than I'm arguing that, like, all black women mm -hmm. <laughs> are suffering the consequences, right? Um, and so that's an ethical question um, that, you know, I'm, like, rubbing up against and trying to, like, universalize this story to, a, to, a, to an extent. So. That's that's an example. Yeah, so the book is obviously highly researched and it's also deeply obsessive. So I'm curious about how you came to conduct the research and how the research became actual poems. How I came to conduct the research and how the research became poems. Yes, please. So that first poem is a real thing that happened to me. So it's semi-autobiographical in that sense. Um, and I was like in this moment of medical distress under a lot of morphine and invoked these three women mm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. in that state, you know, out of like, you know, frustration about what had been transpiring for like the week up until that point and, and that full day at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And so um, that, so in that sense, the research happened before the desire to the experience of making the connection between this history and the present mm -hmm. ever even came along, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like I, you know, I, it was my first year of grad school actually. Um, and like, this wasn't even like a topic that I was thinking about as my research. This is not my dissertation, mm. you know, <laughs> like my dissertation, like there's some poems from the book in my dissertation, but my dissertation is on a completely different topic. And um, like even the subject of like the history of medicine and black women's health, like it was a mm. very big thing for folks who I was um, student colleagues with at Spelman, which is where I got my undergraduate degree in women's studies and English. But I was not interested in health. Like, you know, I was interested in like black women artists mm -hmm. and um, like some of those black women artists dealt with these subjects, you know. Um, shout out to Nikki Finney, who, who's, whose poem, The Greatest Show on Earth, was like my first, you know, entree into thinking about this particular topic as poetry um, because she directly addresses um, Sarki Barman and Anarcha and um, Joyce Heth 
in that poem. Um, but like, I didn't have a, you know, yeah, I didn't have a desire to actually address this particular issue. But what I did know <laughs> was this article by this um, white woman performance study scholar named Terry Capsalis on the history of gynecology, its connection to the history of performance mm. through through the connection between J. Marion Sims and P.T. Barnum. Interesting. And so this like idea of the spectacle of a black woman's body and the, and the invention of the speculum are linked in American history. And so that was the thing that was still in my brain somehow, even though I was under a lot of morphine and under, in, under a lot of physical distress. Mm. And so, you know, I told those doctors when they wanted to have the third, you know, um, pelvic exam of the day, like gynecology was built on the backs of black women, you know? And so like what happened in the aftermath of that was me thinking like, what the, like what? Like, why would that happen? You know, like, why would I invoke history in that way, in that time, in that moment? You know, like, uh, what what did it mean? Like, why couldn't I, um, why wasn't my own agency is like, this is, I'm in a lot of pain and that's a problem enough. It was that there was a compound kind of fractaling of, of, what my pain means in this moment, the fact that I had, I kept having a hard time quantifying it for them and all of those little moments of like, like I know what's happening, you're telling me something else is happening, but I know what's happening. You keep asking me if, I, if it's possible that I'm pregnant. You keep asking me about my sexual history. My sexual history hasn't changed since the last shift. <laughs> I've been, you know, like, you know, like the, there's like all of these things and it's like, and it's clear, like, I know what's happening and you kind of know what ha what's happening. So what are we doing here? Right. Like, what is the dance that we're doing here? So let me name it. And like the need to, to, or the feeling that I had to name it is what precipitated in this book. It's like, you know, the like obtuse <laughs> way that it's like, well, now you have to get told about this history that you're pretending like you don't know, or maybe you don't know. Right. Right. Um, but it's your profession, so that's really not rigorous. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Let's, like, let's take a sip. There. <laughs> <laughs> I love tea time. <laughs> love it. So, um, yeah, that's how it started. And it started as watercolors. Like, first I just wanted to paint it. Mm. I didn't, you know, really have words for it. I was really trying to write it down, and it kept being, like, a really bad poem that started off as like this is how it happened <laughs> you know like it was terrible yeah. um and so like those little poems ended up just being like raw material is like uh journal entries in which i could like trace some of the autobiographical stuff um while i was doing research on these women more closely so. you just mentioned watercolor and i'm still thinking about um, how we started with this reading where you invited us to contribute our voices. And one thing I'm surprised hasn't come up on the podcast all that much is like multimedia in relationship mm -hmm. to poetry. And mm -hmm. I know that you have, you know, some visual art backgrounds mm -hmm. and you're very interested. It seems to me in making poems come alive in unexpected ways in rooms with other people. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping you would talk a little bit about, multimedia as you see it in relationship to your poems or these mm -hmm. incorporations of other ways of making if it's visual if it's sonic however you want to take it right yeah I mean the fact that I like I was first thinking about what was in the poems as a visual thing um like I, I entered with like a kind of not even cinematic yet, like not moving the image, but still image in my mind um, for like, and not necessarily a, a still image of these women, but a still image of how all of this felt. Mm. And so I only had one image that I kept recreating mm. 
Can you describe it in any way for us? I know that's so hard to describe <laughs> a visual, but yeah. I'm thinking like in terms of color or. Yeah, no, it was um, essentially it was it. And I kept redoing it. And if I say it, if I describe it, it's like actually it, I f- it feels a little cheesy to me. But it was essentially what. So what happened to me was an ovarian torsion. And what that is, is. A, an ovary turning on its own blood vessels and suffocating. And so, and then I was thinking about like racial death and that was actually the first project in grad school as I was interested in like the history of um, lynching and the practice of collecting body parts from lynching. And so um, I was thinking a lot about lynching and so the, the the kind of visual idea of a blood vessel like strangling its own organ like to me kind of had like a mirror image for like what um the moment of being like strangled by a rope might might be and so that's that was it was like versions of that kind of imagery over each other but I realized, like, like I didn't like the image itself, but I, what it was saying was in its multi layers w- was what I wanted to, to communicate. And so, I was like, well, maybe there, there's another way to enter this conversation other than this, this one image, um, that I, I can't even communicate well, in these paintings. So, um, I think, and and what's interesting is it wasn't even anything that happened to me or anything related to reproductive organs that ended up being the first poem. The first poem in, was the poem in Joyce Hess' voice where it starts off, and for my last trick, I will release the ghost, right? But, like, it makes sense because it's, like, that overlapping of those kinds of kind of visual histories and also what I was thinking about in that visual history is like the history of racial medicine and and trying to document which is why I used watercolor like trying to document um things in the natural world visually that was so popular in the 17th and in well in the 18th and 19th centuries right you know there a lot of them were these sketchbooks of you know you know just um casual observers of, Mm -hmm. of science um, and so the idea that this could be made, an image like that could be made benign through this very feminine medium, mm-hmm. um, interests me. Um, but yeah, that first poem was this haughty, like, poem that in my mind looked like a circus announcement poster or something. And it was in Joyce Hath's own voice. And I was like, oh, this is different. Like, this is a different way to enter this topic um, and what I'm thinking. And it's still somehow doing the same thing in my mind that these images that I can't seem to get right are trying to do. As a matter of process, I'm, like, really curious about, like, making a piece of work and then... I mean, it, or what it sounds like to me is like you made a piece of, or you made several pieces mm-hmm. of art, mm-hmm. um, and then actually in like sort of trying to interpret what that meant for you, produced mm-hmm. a book of poems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that yeah. like as a matter of process, like is that common for you? And did the like initial pieces, works of art, like end up living as products, or are they just like part of the process? That's wild. Thank you for saying that. I think I realized something. Oh, yeah, epiphany. Maybe. Yummy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, so no, like those paintings, I don't know. They're like in a folder somewhere. They never go, <laughs> never live. I mean, well, the cover of the book is my visual work. Oh, wow. Too, or like a section of it. Um, it's like a, a detail of a, of a pretty big piece. It's in my living room now. Um, but... And and that was started and completed while I was writing the book of poems. So 
Like it was like I was able to make another kind of image related to the topic while writing um, the the book as it was a series of poems. Um, but yes, I do think that's a little bit of my process. Like um, I was trying to figure out what I meant in this visual realm poetry showed up and was like hey i can do this a little better (laughs) 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 and and it it did i think and then i mean i mean i think that also connects to even my scholarship because what writing this book of poems did is it helped me finish my dissertation so i wrote this and my dissertation at the same time and my dissertation topic was on how black women artists produce feminist thought through the affective, so through feeling. Mm. And so um, I just published, like just as in last spring, published an article that's a chapter to the book manuscript that came from the dissertation um, on black women's anger as you know, productive. It's called Sapphire's Praxis. It's in feminist studies. And I actually explicate some of the poems from Patient to be like, like, no, this is what I was doing. Like, I was interested in anger. Like, Patient is working with this concept of anger that I've done all this theorizing for you in the first, like, 15, 20 pages of this or so. Um, But let me show you how I did it here. So, yeah, I do think that's a bit of my process is that I'm constantly trying to say a thing and then moving through different media yeah it's like translating and pushing further each time it uses this other medium I can't wait to see what the article turns into next (laughs) yeah right right I mean yeah I mean what the article produced was another poem that became a video poem that's actually in the article so now we're in video yeah amazing (laughs) yeah so um in that poem is um on or about July 10th 2015 and so I didn't have that poem or the video that came with that poem until I finished you know multiple versions of that article and this the this book was already out there in the streets um and so that became, yeah, a new a new thing. This this video, which is about this video poem, which is about Sandra Sandra Bland, um, and being pulled over and being misread. So, I hate to keep asking you to describe things that are impossible to s- describe because uh-huh. they're not verbal things. But um, d- I think you know, video poems. There's so many different ways that that can look mm-hmm. and be approached. Could you mm-hmm. talk just a little bit about how you? approached a video poem right um yeah um so I like I think I'm still figuring out what a video poem looks like of course we're all figuring out what a poem still is (laughs) so 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 there's like I think maybe my first video poem was the like trailer for the book you know and so I did this it's cute yeah it's on the website (laughs) 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 and you know I just you know took you know, video of like the floor of Johns Hopkins like hospital, and so and so it's abstract, and you hear the f- the feet stepping, and I'm reading that first poem and interspersing like some of the blurbs and all of that, and so that was my first attempt at doing something that was like that was trying to translate the feeling of hearing the poem, reading the poem, because I, I experience all the poetry as an audio thing. Um, but in this kind of different media. Um, and so that was my first one. The next one, I've done it differently each time. So the next versions of video poems are not this project at all. Um, it's from a collection, like a self-published chapbook called Binding that I also have up on the website. Um, which is about intimacy and making gender and queer relationship. And so um, those poems still relied on the text of the poem of, of the poems themselves, like, because there was some play with what words could be said and what words couldn't be said as like the subtext of the poem. 
So that's, I did that. There's two poems that are in this book are made a video of called run on sentence. Um, and it draws on some, um, on um, a passage or a page of J. Marion Sims, one of J. Marion Sims's um, textbooks on uterine surgery. And so there's this page, it's page 14. And um, it's where he's describing the Sims position. There's a diagram of the Sims position. Um, and diagram is, of a, is supposed to be of a woman in that position, which is kind of like basically on all fours or whatever, but the diagram itself is just an isosceles triangle or a right triangle, right triangle, yeah. Oh, wow. It's not so even abstracted. a figure. It's so abstracted, and even, like, <laughs> there's even, like, angle A. <laughs> like, oh, wow. What? That's blowing my mind. Yeah, yeah, so that's, like, in the center of the page, but that's juxtaposed to him describing what how to put the subject in this position it almost reads like a harlequin romance it's like first you unfasten the strings of the corset and all undergarments and then you lay the patient down and then like and it's just with this triangle with this triangle wow. and then like <laughs> yeah. also still referencing the triangle so like you know, line A B. You know, like, oh. that juxtaposition is mind blowing. It's it yeah. wild. So to there's me. just no body. It's, there's no body, but there is a body, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's doing this really tense, like I like I see how this is sexual, but I'm trying to make it very clinical, but it is sexual to me. You know, <laughs> like while also knowing that this is the position he did not put his like white subjects in when he moved north these the, like he stopped doing surgeries in this particular position because it didn't allow for the use of anesthesia right so it was specifically these enslaved women that were put in this particular position and it's so abstracted and so the poems that connect Joyce Heth and um Anarcha Betsy and Lucy which is the calculus of us and um, the geometry of the showman's recollection are in that. And so I animate basically the, the right triangle getting up and walking off the table. Oh, wow. Mm. Right. And so like th there's just very different ways that I've been doing the animation. So it's in, in the July 10th, 2000, on or about July 10th, 2015, it's me driving down you can appreciate this because you're here in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> what I called the white way to work. Oh, I was living. I was living in Othello, driving to university, and I take the um, Lake Washington all the way because there's like no lights mm -hmm. and no police presence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're familiar with this, and the scenery is beautiful. It's gorgeous. It is the most gorgeous, like. <laughs> Beautiful. You know, like who wants to be on I five when you can just be like, oh, look at these trees <laughs> and the lake the and lake. the water. It's just big gorgeous. Houses, the big ass Kurt Cobain's house. You know, like all that. Ah. It's just gorgeous over there. And so, you know, um, mm. but still with this kind of like I did, like I am taking this way to like circumnavigate, not just the issue of traffic, but the issue of surveillance and you know that feeling of having a kindred spirit with uh, with Sandra Bland because she was an educator. She w was also in a new city, also finding her way around um, to go to work, you know, like what, and you know, I was always kind of flying down that little road, trying not to hit bike, bike <laughs> bicyclists um, and listening to my radio and singing along. And that's so regular. But in the back, back, back of my mind is this possibility. So it's basically that. Yeah. So, you know, folks who are, you know, from Seattle know that road. <laughs> be like, oh, I know that. <laughs> what Tina said. Yeah. That's Kurt Cobain's. I do think you get like a little snip of Kurt Cobain's house. Uh. <laughs> like the Saturday night. Yeah. the teaching hospital for the second time 
April 27th, 2006. To each doctor, a speculum. No time for a room with walls. No procedure, no apologies. No. Apologies all mine. I've not yet learned how to look when I'm entered. Not yet learned where to turn. Ceiling, curtain, the barrel of myself. Or to the patient beside me who in his sleep mumbles, I'm going nigger hunting. I'm going to get you, nigger. So over the course of the book, um, the poems uh, just formally become more lineated, diverse, um, and lyrical. And in the middle section, you play with math, like you mentioned, right? Um, and so I'm curious, just uh, in the process of making the book, which of those poems came first? Um, and then what about, I guess like you've sort of talked about, so I'm going to try and ask the question in a different way. Like, what about the inquiry led you to the different modes specifically, like the lyrical versus the analytical? Okay. Um, shout out to Kave Kanam. Yes. Um, I actually, this poem at the teaching hospital for the second time, wrote it at my very first Kave Kanam, which was in 2007, seven. And I believe in it, it was in the workshop with Patricia Smith. Um, and I specifically remember that because she suggested a particular enjambment in here and I can still always hear it in her voice. Um, so, and I also wrote the, the math poems, like the, the one, uh, um, the geometry of the showman speculum, um, geometry of the showman's recollection, not speculation. All right. Ah, I mean. <laughs> We're poets. We can make up whatever words we want. You know, that's what I tell my students. <laughs> um, I wrote that at, at my second one, which was in 2008. And I was with Cornelius E.D., I think. So I think I was in a, like, active mode in the space of this week-long workshop of trying new things and seeing if I could get away with it and, you know, knowing I can get like pretty much instant, really reliable feedback on what works and or what might not work. And so that's where I felt free to do some of the stuff where I was like, you know, I hated geometry. <laughs> Let's see if I could do a series of proofs as a poem, you yeah. know? Um, and so, but I actually liked functions. You know, and why do you think that is? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's weird. Maybe I didn't like my geometry teacher. Mm, that's Maybe real. That was it. That's how it is usually. You know, and I might not have liked even my calculus teacher. I know I didn't like my calculus pe- teacher. I was failing calculus. <laughs> but my but that was when I started to actually get tutelage from my grandmother, who was a mathematician. Wow. So, you know, like I don't know, maybe it's like a kind of yeah, something in there about and calculus and like functions seem a little more abstract mm-hmm. to than like geometry. I think that's why I preferred geometry is because I got to like draw shapes and I was like, finally, something I can like Like hold on to with my eye. (laughs) Well, and that sort of is related to my follow-up question, which is like, did, and just accepting sort of the trajectory of the book as sort Mm -hmm. of lyric, as sort of a a place that it's headed, Mm -hmm. like, was there something surprising about the mode of lyric or like something surprising about the mode of the analytic or like Mm -hmm. writing these math poems or limitations that surprised you i think i was interested in writing the math poems that um i could still be lyrical while doing that okay like while it was like confined in particular kinds of ways like it ends up being bullet points but it's like there's a way to to still do the interior kind of 
narration that happens in the lyric through this kind of bullet bulleted thing and I think that was that was kind of the cerebral thing I was trying to get at was you know these one you know like there is a way that juxtaposing these two moments these two sets of of women right the anarcha betsy lucy and all of them and joyce Heff, like against each other like what are the connections like what are what are the mathematical equations <laughs> that happen in that but then also the idea of logic is so strong at this time like like the the moment of like of 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 you know the aftermath of the enlightenment um moving into kind of what ends up being what we call now racial medicine but you know it was then like hard science about this the this you know the species right um and that they have to speak through that that's just as illogical yeah. or, or nonsensical or possibly non-lyrical as them speaking about their humanity through geometry, you know, and maybe yeah, geometry yeah, is a yeah, little yeah, more yeah, friendly yeah. to them. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe calculus is a little more friendly to them yeah. than uh, anthropology and biology. And yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, like thinking of what is it like nephrology or whatever, right? Like there's a sort of like, container of mm-hmm. science like it, it has the appearance of like science and proof and logic but mm-hmm. like right like you look Make inside and it's actually no just total sense. nonsense yeah, yeah. Like no <laughs> damn sense. I, mean, I mean this is also a period of time where you know cartwright and them you know making up diseases like draftomania <laughs> like you know like this is a disease that for some reason makes these negroes want to run away from being slaves like that's a you know mm-hmm. like the kinds of assumptions and that's an associate yeah, it's just not <laughs> logical. And so maybe math does a better job at translating these women's stories than the science that, you know, was trying to figure them out. The science that wanted to dissect Joyce Half on that table and figure out who she really was. Yeah. Um, so the book immediately, immediately announces its quote-unquote aboutness, right? Mm-hmm. When we discuss what the aboutness is, I'm um, documenting black women as a patient, um, as a subject. And as I go through the book, read through the book, I also become very uncomfortable because how it's written, right? And mm-hmm. I have to become patient to, to understand them being a patient. And so, mm-hmm. um, and the book eventually ends on like a patience, right? Um, with mm-hmm. the poem, um, to the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to read it, but not anymore. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm wondering, can you explain more, talk about more of that overlap and that um, justification, like the idea of being patient as, say, the being in a, in a practice versus being a patient mm-hmm. as experimenting subject? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, that's a few things, right? So patient as in the like subject of medicine mm-hmm. who is a subject of medicine but there for their health mm-hmm. right which is that's where like patient and subject are like these two weird terms yeah. that aren't right that's why the, the book isn't called subjects the book is called <laughs> patient but we're talking about subjects mm-hmm. um and so but we're talking about subjects that are objects. It's so right. confusing. Down um, <laughs> the rabbit hole. <laughs> right? right? Somebody write that. <laughs> but um, so, so there's that. And then, you know, I was interested in the etymology of the term patient, of course, which is, you know, related to some word that means one who suffers. Right? And so even the, like, idea of what it means to be patient and to be a patient suffering. includes the mm-hmm. concept of suffering. And the idea is like one, like even if you're not suffering kind of the medical gaze or whatever, you're suffering time mm. because you're being very like, hyper aware of time, right? Like watching grass grow, for example. <laughs> um, and then I had a question <laughs> about it, which I, I think is, is in one of the poems. Like if you're watching grass grow, if you're, you are waiting time, and you are doing it intensely and there's like an interior feeling of angst, anxiety, is that patience at all? Or is that being imposed on you, right? Because I can hear like even in that moment to be reminded to be patient 
if I'm waiting intently on something. So mm. like, what does it mean to be patient versus being a patient? And, you know, what is the concept of time in relationship to those things? Um, and in terms of like the construction of the book, I don't know that I, I really thought about um, how people might read it and their their own feeling of patience or being patient. Um, but um, I did think about how time and slowing of time does something to a person and how it did things to these women that I'm writing about, right? So Joyce Heth, she's aged, mm-hmm. you know, before, like aged beyond herself, even in her life. Um, the story is that, or one of the stories about her life, right? Because she's really mythologized. It's like P.T. Barnum's whole spiel. Um, but one of the stories is that, you know, she was found on the, s- the floor of an outhouse, like just dirty and had been discarded in that way, right? So he was creating a kind of like sympathetic mm-hmm. abolitionist story and called himself an abolitionist um, while own, owning the bill of sale for her. Um, but, you know, like the, the, the like from the other perspective of it, like who Joyce Heth was, like if, if she was found on the floor <laughs> of, of this outhouse or the, or the shed, um, like what was it like to just like sit in this room and wait for somebody to take you to your next adventure as an enslaved person? Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of the way that she was displayed, um, the the description of her display as being like just her sitting in a bed and then sometimes waking up for her for her audience and sometimes deciding to stay asleep for her audience. You know, like. Mm like what it means to constantly be in this in this state of being watched in your kind of late life and having this kind of mundane kind of experience right um so that was like another way that i was thinking about time thinking about esmine green and waiting to be a patient right on that you know at king's county hospital and like waiting to be waited on, waiting, 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 and dying, and what it means to like wait for that. So I was thinking about being in wait. Mm. Mm, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. In preparing to talk with you today, I was going and reading some of your interviews that you've oh, done, okay. um, and I came across. I know it's always scary to like tell people that they're like, "What did I say?" Um, I'll tell you what you said. You said. <laughs> Uh, somewhere you said uh, that the best revenge is joy. And I was wondering, would you say that joy is a discipline for you? And if so, how have you been practicing it lately? It's, It's a tenet in my religion that is, you know, the collected works that is housed in the collected works of Lucille Clifton. Um. So if anybody has ever gone to see her read while she was still living, she would sign any book, didn't matter who you were, how long you knew her, how long you tried to chat her up. (laughs) Her signature was Joy! Exclamation point, Lisa Clifton. Oh, my heart. Yeah, anytime I use the word joy, I think about that. And it's joy exclamation point in my mind. Um, and and I actually, in this book of, this book of uh, expository propositional prose. Okay. Um, <laughs> trying to use this, because people <laughs> have been like, when are you going to write your academic book? And I'm like, this book is an academic Ooh, book. there it is. Yes. So let's talk about the writing so style you're actually uh-huh. asking about. Yes. So I'm calling it expository For propositional everyone in the prose. Back. Um, I love it. Thanks. (laughs) Um, There's a chapter on Lucille Clifton's Theology of Joy. Um, 
And so I, I'm, I'm really drawing from her on that. And it's a very complicated, or my reading of her on that, it's a very complicated understanding of joy. And that is kind of like even, it's, it's different from like, Best Revenge is Your Paper, mm-hmm. to quote <laughs> another uh, one of our, our avatars. Um, it, it's, it's not just like being happy. It's being incredibly aware and present in the fact that one is feeling. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. even if and when I'm miserable, like broken hearted, like there's something about it, and maybe it's because I'm Pisces, but there's <laughs> something about being in that that's like I can like I can feel this thing, and because I can feel this thing, I can touch like humanity in a deeper way, and I can touch myself mm-hmm. in a deeper way, and that experience with like connectivity with the living and the dead with like with all that exists is joy is joyful the the ability to own that thing um is joy so yeah yeah like so you know i think i was actually going through a heartbreak too at various points of time in writing this and so it wasn't just the fact that I published a book that was like revenge. It was like the fact that it's like oh, I just I'm feeling so many things. Like I I'm not just feeling, you know, your fuck boyness. You know, <laughs> like like I'm feeling <laughs> like like the whole of my embodied self that's sexual, that's broken hearted. I, Dang it, if my broken heart doesn't mean I have a heart at all, right? Mm. So yeah. That's that's what joy is for me. As Aaron C for Henrietta Lacks after Walcott. And that Walcott quote is, you know, um, where is your history and that dark vault of the sea um i've almost died four times first in the womb suffocating on the idea twice nearly drowned once in mount sinai lungs failing chest compressing extending you were the science so that i would not you on that last bed you in tubes growing all around Had I known, I would have wept, would not have thought of death myself, had not an autopsy, a fistula, your cells. What lives would be uncradled? What discoveries never proclaimed? What bodies left between here and oblivion, all-encompassing blue, vast open coffin of air and sea? I am thankful for medicine, the way it cradles, kills. Death isn't careless. Breathing, even if difficult, is air. Air, not salt water. Not yet. I do not want to be responsible for the retelling. There is no returning to mother's dreamless sleep. No heritage cruise, only forward through the mind's backward gaze. When there may be some chance of forgetting, mind veers off to the waves. You are memory. You are everything. Thank you to Bettina for giving us the excuse to hang out and sip on Aperol spritzes, for talking with us about joy, and reading your gorgeous palms for us. Thank you to The Flavor Blue for our awesome theme music, which you should totally jam out to as soon as I finish talking. Thank you, listeners, for being you. 
please, 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 if you haven't already, take a quick moment to rate us five stars and write us a sweet little review. We really do read them and appreciate them so much. Mm -hmm. It's true. Obsessively. Maybe too much. Yeah, we kind of check, like, what, every 15 minutes? Is that? We're checking now. <laughs> Literally checking right now. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send us your questions, compliments, hot goss, etc. to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. Oh my God. <laughs> 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 Fedi and spaghetti, fedi in the...